Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church, uh, especially if you are a guest with us this morning. So glad you are, are here with us. Um, and if you're watching online, our onliners, uh, good morning to you. I can't say good morning to F3 downstairs because uh, they're not meeting today. It's the 10th anniversary since we started F3, and uh, they're going to meet tonight and have a picnic, and I get to come back and preach again. You know, I could be on the screen, but no, they want live, so. <laughs> Which is why they pay me the big bucks. Yeah, we're glad you're here. Ten, ten years ago, um, psychiatrist Jacqueline Olds teamed up with Richard Schwartz, her partner, and wrote a book uh, entitled The Lonely American, subtitled Drifting Apart in the 21st Century. It's a book that kind of was an expose on, on the, this, this growing kind of cultural malaise of isolationism, disconnectedness in our culture. And, um, and they were also writing about how um, our, our structures of society help uh, increase that uh, problem of disconnectedness and isolationism. A few years later, uh, Cigna did a, uh, a major study in, in 2018 on this same topic and affirmed these concerns about uh, disconnectedness and isolationism in our American society. Half of the 20,000 adults that had been studied and surveyed indicated they struggle with loneliness. And it was that study that indicated uh, that, that problem of disconnected society was at an all-time high. Now, if it was been a problem the last 10 years uh, or more, my goodness, it's been, uh, uh, you know, like on steroids here the last year. Disconnectedness, isolationism. Um, what was it I read? That something like 40% of uh, Americans worked from home this last year and 33% didn't work at all. So isolated from work, isolated from others. Um, it's a major, major issue. And we, we've got the data, or at least supposedly, on statistics about how many Americans contracted COVID, how many went to the hospital, how many uh, perished because of COVID. But uh, I don't know how they're ever gonna get a handle on the impact in terms of mental health of what has happened around the world. Uh, because of, of, of COVID. Um, of course, the, the antidote to this problem of, of isolationism and loneliness, the antidote comes from what the Apostle Paul is teaching in Romans chapter 12, the passage that we have been studying here. And it's this seemingly simple but very complex idea of unhypocritical love. So I invite you to take your Bibles again we are, we've just kind of been parked here at, uh, at Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9, and this passage on, uh, on unhypocritical love. You see, when, when God's people um, relate to one another with this genuine, sincere love of Jesus, and then they become a, a conduit to a hurting world that is lost in loneliness— that's when lives get changed. That's when hearts are healed. That's when God is glorified. 
And so Paul in this passage, uh, which rivals the 1 Corinthians 13 passage, I think, about uh, the, the love chapter, in this passage in Romans chapter 12, he spends a lot of time explaining what unhypocritical love looks like. 1 Corinthians, or Romans 12, starting in verse 9, the exhortation is let love be without hypocrisy. And then there are these phrases, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, there are these triplet um, concepts in these verses, groups of three that unpack and give us an understanding. Uh, love is, there's a, there's a spiritual sensitivity to it. Abhor what is evil. Someone who loves the way Jesus loves looks at evil and there's a visceral response of abhorrence of evil and then a clinging to what is good. There's a tenderness to love. The words that are used there um, are, are, are very familial. They're the love of, of within a family of parents for children. The tenderness of love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. There's a humility of love. The idea of giving preference to one another and with honor. Uh, stepping aside and letting others have the, the, the focal point. Um, the next set of words or concepts, there's a consistency of love. Not lagging behind in, diligent, in diligence. There is um, there's a persistent, ongoing, um, there's not an on again and off again. It, it is a consistent flow of love. There's an earnestness to love, fervent in spirit. The word is um, boiling over, uh, to be hot, boiling. And, and it's, a, it's an intense idea. It's not a, just a, a laissez-faire approach to other people and the concerns of the world. There's a fervency earnestness. The focus of love, serving the Lord, because as we serve one another, we're serving the Lord. And then the last set of three, hopefulness of love, rejoicing in hope, the perseverance of love. We persevere in the midst of tribulation, and ultimately the posture of love. We're devoted to prayer. Love prays for people. Well, this morning we want to continue and look at another essential characteristic of, of love. And we're going to look at this one kind of concept, and that is simply that love gives. But it's kind of divided up there in verse 13 into two aspects. Contributing to the needs of the saints, it says in verse 13. Practicing hospitality. Love gives. In fact, that's kind of the essential nature, the essential character of this unhypocritical love. It doesn't isolate, it doesn't kind of put a wall between us and other people and the concerns of other people. There's a givingness, and Paul says it's going to be reflected in two things, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. Now, this morning I want to look at that second one first, practicing hospitality. That word hospitable, hospitality, is a Greek word, philoxenia, which is Two words, philo, love, xenia, the, of strangers, lover of strangers. A lover of strangers. Um, caring for people that you might not even know. And it's uh, an, an intense concept. 
first word, the participle, practicing. Um, in fact, there's various translations. Um, the, um, uh, the idea is to, uh, to pursue hard after. To, it, it would be used like an army that was pursuing um, a retreating enemy force, and they're pursuing hard after them. In fact, in the very next verse, verse 14, that word is used, the exact word is used, but it's translated in our translation as pers persecution. Bless those who persecute you. That's the same word. Bless those who are going after you and, you know, kind of pounding you. They're pursuing hard after you in a negative way. Pursue, go after, practice intensely this concept of being a stranger lover, a lover of strangers. Now, we need to get a little background to why Paul would say this. In these times that Paul is writing, the Bible times, the Roman Empire, of course they had the, the Roman roads, the system that the Romans had built, and you could travel in different parts of the empire um, through these networks of Roman roads. And people did travel uh, a lot in those days. It took a lot longer, as obviously, as people would walk. But um, to find a place to stay at an evening would be difficult, actually could be hazardous to your health. One commentator, William Barclay, explained that these, these inns of the day, he said they were filthy, ruinously expensive, and of low repute. They were filthy, ruinous, expensive, and of ill repute. Of course, I don't know, maybe you've stayed in some of those places, even here in the United States. You get what you pay for, by the way. You see, back in those days, there were no Hyatt Regencies or Holiday Inns or not even Motel Sixes. There were these places that people could stay, but it was a place that you really wouldn't want to stay, and you certainly, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't want to stay. Um, they were dangerous. And so, as Christians traveled about, it was a blessing to know that fellow believers would open their home where you could find shelter, where you could have a, a warm meal, a place to lay your head at night, and, um, and continue your travels. And Paul is saying, as believers, we need to pursue actively. We need to go after the idea of practicing this concept of, of hospitality. Every Christian home, someone wrote, is to be a Christian inn where fellow believers can find gladly given entertainment without cost. A Christian home. By the way, in the, check this out. If, you, if any of you still have a hard copy of a dictionary at home, <laughs> um, I, I looked at this up in, in mine, but it, like in Webster's Dictionary, this word hospitable lands between two other words. The one word is hospice, you know, a place of, uh, of, of shelter. We think of a, of a hospice where you can, as you travel, a hospice. Uh, but we think of it also as a place of great care, the, the, the ministry of hospice that comes to your home. And hospital, a place where you find healing. Hospitable. It's a place where people can find caring shelter and a place for uh, merciful healing. Hospitable. Practice hospitality. Now, let's face it, in our day and age, um, we do have Hyatt Regencies and Holiday Inns and 
Airbnbs and bed and breakfasts and you can plan your trip and you can stay at all sorts of places and, and very nice, wonderful places and we don't have to uh, worry about places that are um, filthy and ruinous and of low repute. Um, so it's, it's a little different thing in our day and age in our culture here. Uh, we, we don't necessarily have to practice hospitality in that sense. Um, and yet, this is still an exhortation to us today as believers. And so what we typically think of when we think of hospitality, uh, we think of, well, maybe entertaining people in your home. Uh, Karen Maidens wrote a book a number of years ago called Open Heart, Open Home, where she tries to explain, though, the difference between entertaining and, and true hospitality. Let me read a little bit from her book. We've allowed the world to force us into its mold, she writes. Entertaining has very little to do with hospitality. Secular entertaining is a terrible bondage. It's a source of human pride, demanding perfection, fostering the urge to impress. It is a rigorous taskmaster which enslaves, and in contrast, scriptural hospitality is a freedom that liberates. You see, entertaining says, I want to impress you with my beautiful home, my clever decorating, my gourmet cooking. Hospitality, however, seeks to minister. It says, this home is not mine, it's a gift from my master. I am his servant and I use it as he desires. Hospitality does not try to impress, it serves. Entertaining always puts things before people. As soon as I get the house finished or the living room decorated, my place setting is complete, my housekeeping done, then I'll start having people in. Hospitality, however, puts people before things. We don't have any furniture, but hey, come on over. We love you. Let's eat on the floor. Oh, the decorating may never get done, but come on over just the same. Or the house is a mess, but hey, you are friends. We never get to see you, so let's spend some time together anyway. She says, essential to hospitality is that the open heart will always result in the open house. In this inhospitable world, a Christian home is a miracle to be shared. Boy, is that not true? In this inhospitable world, in this world of ever-increasing loneliness, in this disconnected world, in this vastly expanding social media screen world that we live in, True biblical hospitality is a miracle to be shared. By the way, this biblical hospitality, back even in the days of the Apostle Paul in the first century into the second century, could, um, could be abused by unscrupulous um, people who, you know, like fish, if you stay three days, you start stinking. And there's an ancient... Um, Christian document called the Didache. It's some instructions, and it, it dates back to right at the end of the first century. So just a decade or two, maybe, after the Apostle John died. But this ancient document had this um, advice. I think it's pretty interesting. It said, let every apostle who comes to you be received as the Lord, but, but, let him not stay more than a day, and if need be, a second as well. But if he stays three days, he's a false prophet. And when an apostle goes forth, let him accept nothing but bread, 
until he reaches his night's lodging. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. Little instructions there at the end of the first century about the people who could abuse your good heart of hospitality. So, just real quickly, what, 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 what might that look like for us today? I mean, the, the, the scary thing when we come and open the Bible and read it and study it and preach it is that, I mean, it is God's Word. It's instruction from God. It's not some man's opinion. This is God's Word to us, His people. He's saying love gives. Practice hospitality. So what might that look like for us today? Maybe it's um, throwing on some burgers on the grill and inviting your neighbors that uh, you really don't even hardly know their name. Uh, maybe it's um, meeting someone here in, in the hallways at the church and um, you invite them over for a dessert or take them out to lunch after, after church. Um, my sister and her husband, just last August, in the midst of kind of the COVID thing, moved to Redmond, Oregon, to be close to their one son and family. And uh, so they moved into a, a neighborhood that was um, very new, and uh, of course, they didn't know anybody. Uh, but my sister has a heart for people, and um, has a hospitable spirit to her. And so she went around to all the neighbors uh, and printed out the little something, invited them the following Saturday to her driveway to uh, enjoy freshly made cinnamon rolls and get them meet each other. Well, she didn't know how many to expect, but that Saturday morning rolled around, she made her cinnamon rolls, got some chairs out, and uh, in the driveway, and 25 people showed up. Neighbors who had lived there who hadn't ever met the neighbor across the street. And my sister kind of became the catalyst to get people connected. And they've done it more than once. What might God want us to do? To practice, to pursue after, to go after hard this idea of lovers of strangers. It's a command of the Lord. But let's go back to that first little phrase, contributing to the needs of the saints. Um, throughout Scripture, we know that um, these exhortations are given about how we use our financial resources to help believers in Christ. For instance, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good. Why? So that he will have something to share with one who has need. Work so that you have something to share. Now, obviously, in our day and age, uh, it's kind of getting screwed up. You don't have to work, and the government will give you something. Um, but uh, that's not the biblical approach. The biblical approach is work so that you will have extra, so that you can share with those who are going to have a, a legitimate need. Now, I want us to look at another uh, kind of key passage that speaks of this, kind of a sister passage here, and that's in 1 Corinthians. So take your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 16, some instructions that Paul gave to the Corinthian church. Uh, this is um, 
the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, and um, he gives these instructions. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Now, I, I, I find it kind of interesting that this passage follows right on the heels of a very, very significant passage, chapter 15, on the resurrection of Christ. It's that passage that says, if Christ has not been raised, then we are all, of most, all people most to be pitied. And he focuses on the reality of the resurrection of Christ and his coming again. In a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will be raised. Wonderful, wonderful theological passage. And right on the heels of that is these final words. Now concerning the collection of the saints, take care of the needs of others. Money mattered to Paul. It was not an insignificant theme. Now what was, again, the context going on here? What, what, what was happening that Paul needed to raise funds? What, what's happening? Um, verse 3 there said, and when I when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Well, Acts chapter 11, we won't take the time to turn there, but in Acts chapter 11, there was a major famine that was going on in that region of the Middle East, in Judea at that time. There was also major persecution happening to the believers in Jerusalem who had stayed. Many of the believers had already left Jerusalem because of that persecution. But now they're also faced with this growing famine. Um, there's some major concerns going on. And so Paul is going to other churches, uh, like the church, churches uh, of Galatia, and now the Corinthian church, the Greek churches. And he's saying we need to collect funds and resources so that we can help our fellow believers that are in the Jerusalem church that are suffering greatly. That's kind of the, the, the context of what's happening. Now notice how Paul wants this to take place. And I think this is very instructive. What, what are, what are the, what's the process of collecting the saints? Let me mention four things. First of all, the ministry of giving was to be perpetual, perpetual. It was not just a one-time thing. Notice verse 2, on the first day of every week, the first day of every week, do this collection. Now, the first day of the week would be Sunday, right? That's typically when the early church met. Jewish believers, uh, they came out of that Sabbath gathering on Saturday, but there was that seemingly transition to the first day of the week in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus. So he's saying on the first day of the week, you are to take up this collection or, or set aside money and save it on every Sunday. Not just a one-time thing. Every first day of the week, set aside 
some money that can be used to help the other believers in need. It was perpetual. Second of all, this was something that was very personal. Each one of you, it says in verse 2, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save. Paul is calling upon every believer in that Corinthian church to set aside some money that could be collected for the needs of the saints. Um, everyone was to have a personal responsibility to help. No one was to be exempt from this. Everyone could give something. Each one of you, every week on Sunday, is to set aside something that can be collected um, and given. No one was to be excluded. Everyone was involved. It was personal. Thirdly, the ministry of giving was also to be planned giving. Each one of you, he said, is to put aside and save as he may prosper. You've got to figure this out. You've got to decide what is going to work for you. You've got to plan it. You've got to put aside and save. You know, when we were raising our kids, our four kids, I'm sure you've done this if you've raised kids or you're doing it now with kids, um, that old uh, thing with the three jars, right? You had one jar that said uh, giving, and they'd put their little coins in the giving, and then there was another jar, and it said saving, right? And so then they'd put their coins in the saving, and then the third jar said dad. No, <laughs> they, they figured that out real soon. But it was their, 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 their discretionary spending. And so they'd do their little chores, and they'd get their little money, and then they'd put it in the jars. So you teach the kids. You save, you give, and you can now spend this. But you give first, and then you can save, and then you can, it's planned. Um, it's budgeting. It's planned giving. Uh, Dave Ramsey would be very pleased to hear this. Um, and um, put it aside in your piggy bank. Paul says, so that no collections, he said, will be made when I come. So it wasn't like Paul is going to have a, a big event and, uh, you know, the emotional appeal and get everybody together and take up that love offering so that is, uh, you know, he'll tell, show pictures of starving children in Jerusalem and, and pull on your emotions and give and give and keep giving and pass the plate and, oh, there's not enough here. Let's do it again. Come on, give till it hurts and that type. None of that. It was planned, intentional giving. Um, there's a fourth thing, though, that was about this whole ministry of giving, and it was proportionate. Notice it says, on the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. As he may prosper. Um, many of us may have grown up in a kind of a church tradition that um, talked about tithing in the sense that you give 10% of your income. Of course, most Christians don't ever believe that because I think, I don't know what the average giving is of Christians that was like 2% or 5% or something like that. Um, but uh, it was always that sense of you've got to give that 10% to the Lord. Of course, that's an Old Testament concept, not a New Testament concept. In the Old Testament, that was mandated. Um, 
in fact, there was more than one tithe. I think there was a tithe, a double tithe, and even some more. And I'm looking at Christy, I think it's something like 20, 25% or more. Uh, Christy Vocal down here, our, our resident uh, Old Testament expert. But I, it, it's more than just a 10%. Now, you come to the New Testament, and amazingly, that concept is not talked about. What's talked about is grace giving proportionate to where you are right now in life. Um, as he may prosper. So it's, it's between you and the Lord. Between you and the Lord. Paul says, I'm not going to come and, and uh, you know, you fill out the giving card and we're going to check to make sure you did it and all that stuff. This is between you and the Lord. He says, everyone needs to participate. You need to do it on the first day of every week and plan for it. But it, it's according to what God is um, encouraging you or or stirring within you as you as as whatever you have if you have more to give then you give more if you're going through some rough times and you don't have as much then you give that widow's might you give very little but it's proportionate giving as he may prosper one other thing i think that is interesting there in verse three it says and when i arrive whomever you may approve i will send them with letters to carry your gift notice that paul says Paul doesn't touch his money. He does not touch the filthy lucre. <laughs> he said, you figure out among yourselves who is trustworthy, collect it, and when I come, I'll write letters and give it to them, and they take the money to Jerusalem. Paul stayed away from it. And I'm not sure if you are aware. We haven't, I, I haven't talked, preached on giving for, gee, wow, years. And... Um, uh, I will say this is an incredibly giving church, uh, uh, incredibly giving church. Um, but it's been many years since I've preached on this. But just so you know, you know, elders and the pastors here, we don't handle the giving, the money. Um, we don't know who gives what and when and anything like that. We have a, a couple of uh, people in the finance team who handle all that. And... Um, we're trustworthy, and we have done uh, our due diligence with audits. We did a major audit not long ago, and, and so all that is covered, but we, don't, we stay totally away from that, as we should. That's what the Apostle Paul, he set the example 2,000 years ago. Collect the money, and when I come, I'll write the letters, but figure out who among you will carry this gift to the Jerusalem church. Now, one other thing. Turn over to the next letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In the second letter to the Corinthians, he explains um, the ultimate example of giving. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the, the same church, Paul has to kind of stir them up a little bit. Verse 8, or verse 1, now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God that's been given to the churches of Macedonia. That'd be the Philippian church and the Thessalonian church, some other churches that in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor, for the grace of participating in the support of the saints. So Paul is saying, hey, just want to give you a note about these other churches to the north of you. Man, those guys are hitting it out of the park. They are so excited about giving. In fact, they're begging us to give, and they don't have anything. 
in much poverty. They're, they're, they're overflowing in their liberality. Why did Paul use them as an example? Verse 6, so we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. You read behind the lines, it's saying Paul has given them just a little quick kick in the rear end here. But just as verse 7, you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and all love, we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. So in his second letter, he's encouraging them, now don't forget the collection of the saints. See that you abound in this gracious work also. And then he says in verse 8, I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others, the Macedonian churches, and their great liberality, proving through this earnestness of others the sincerity of your love as well. The sincerity, the unhypocriticalness, the genuineness, the real deal of your love as well. What is Paul saying? He said, let your love be without hypocrisy. But notice how Paul encourages this attitude of giving. In verse 9, he concluded with this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through that though he was rich, yet through, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. You know the grace of God. You know that though he was rich, he became poor for your sake. So that through, the earth, through his poverty, you might become rich. We've just celebrated the Lord's table this morning. As we partake, partook of those elements, it was as if we were saying, you know the grace of God, right? Remember the broken body that was given for you? Remember how Jesus stepped down from his throne in heaven? He didn't have to. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, stepped down, emptied himself, divested himself, set aside his divine prerogatives and became fully humanity while fully God. And he took the form of a servant. He came as one of us. He entered into our spiritually impoverished, darkened world. He who knew no sin then became sin. He went to the cross and our sin was placed upon him to die in our place. He experienced the ultimate poverty, spiritually speaking. The sin of the world placed on him. You know the grace of God. You took of that wafer, the broken body of Christ. You you took of that, that little drink of that juice, the shed blood of Christ. You know what Jesus has done for you. Let's allow him to flow through us a love that gives without hypocrisy. He told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So love one another. We are living in a world that is hell-bent on getting 
And as God's children, we need to be heaven sent on giving. Christianity is the religion of the open hand, the open heart, and the open door. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hard after hospitality. Because true, unhypocritical love gives just like Jesus gave to us. Let's pray. Father, as always, we need to say we can't do this, Lord. We need you to stir us up by way of reminder, to empower us to think beyond ourselves and see the needs of those around us. Um, Father, we, uh, we just need your enablement to obey these things. I would pray, Father, that as these weeks of summer progress and we may consider how we might put into practice some of these things. Out of a genuine heart, Father, to love without hypocrisy, to honor you in a world that seems to be hitting new heights of loneliness. May we be that body of that open heart, the the open hand, the, the open door. Uh, may we um, honor you by being like you. Through your enabling grace, I pray. Amen.